Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast, they get more and more popular, which ours certainly did after episode 20. So we started giving proper introductions, long introductions, and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that. So that's why you're hearing from me now, because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host. My name is James Someru. I'm an anesthetics and intensive care doctor by background. So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think. Welcome to this week's episode of the HS podcast. Uh, my name is James. I'm one of the founders of HS. And with me this week, I have Zoe Peden, who is an entrepreneur turned venture capitalist. Um, Zoe's got loads of experience as a CEO and a leader in technology. She's got about 18 years experience, actually, in the public sector, the private sector, the voluntary sector. And I first met Zoe about a year ago when we were sat next to each other in a co-working space, actually, and someone introduced us. Um, since then, she's helped quite a lot of our HS cohort get invested ready because uh, in that year, she's moved on to become a venture capitalist. So, uh, Zoe, welcome. Thank um, you. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. No problem. So, Zoe, for the listeners, why don't you tell us your story? Okay. Um, so, when I graduated, I failed to get into investment banking, which is what I'd always wanted to do. Uh, since I saw the movie Wall Street when I was 14. Wow. So with that failure, I then I'd been writing for the um, newspaper at university, decided that I would look at publishing instead. And I my first 10 years of work were working for different publishing houses, working in academic publishing. So I actually did some STM journals at one point. That's where I started out. Oh, wow. technical and medical that. stuff yep um, so probably the driest area of publishing that you can get your hands <laughs> on working with different academics from all over the world which is was really you know interesting and a very privileged situation and then yeah I worked in academic then legal publishing then education publishing in different countries and then back into business publishing working with lots of entrepreneurs towards the end of my 20s and then I took some time off to go backpacking. And in that year, I decided that I wanted to change and I wanted to do something that was going to help people instead of um, being working in large corporations that were um, all the decisions were taken by shareholders. And there were so many shakedowns and redundancies. It was just very depressing. So I went and found a job at a charity. Uh, as a senior manager so I was able to get some more business experience too so it ticked two bits it was like um, doing something where I was helping people 
but also getting more senior management experience and learning how to run a business. That charity was called the Makaton Charity. And it's, um, it has a language program of sign language and symbols that have been around since the late 70s that are used to help people um, develop speech and language. So those who wouldn't, who don't learn like um, the atypical way of learning language. So they could have some mild learning difficulties or some really severe ones. And it's really, really effective. So I, I went to work there, work on all their products. Um, they were a very small charity. They just got um, a grant, half a million, I think. So they were moving from the founder's home to an actual office above an Aldi supermarket. Wow. So it's, it's a glamour of charity. Um, but it, <laughs> it was an excellent experience, a very family orientated thing. I was employee number 10. And then really quickly we went up to 20 with the funding. And we had to put in all um, processes, basically. So the anti-entrepreneurial um, aspect of me came out then because I'd started to do an MBA. And with that, becomes lots of processes and um, frameworks that you learn when you do an MBA. So I, I inserted all those into the, the charity. I got to do that, which was really good fun. And um, look at sales projections and work on a, a number of products because I'd spent like, 10 years in publishing, working in product development. So looking at um, new books, so working as a commissioning editor, working on electronic products, as we called them, CD-ROMs back in the day, and portals, as we call them then. I built them, I, I learned to code um, really badly, but good enough to be good in publishing, to, yeah. to build some companion websites to, to books. So and I, I really enjoyed doing that side, all the electronic side, and um, that's what I was brought in to help on at the charity. And then while I was at the charity, fiddling around um, with my future co-founder with iPhones, um, seeing what we could do with the Makaton language program, I went to a, an education conference, showed a few teachers, and they said, oh, you know, the language program looks great on that, but that um, device is too small with our kids. Um, and the adults with learning disabilities, it will end up in the toilet, you know, it will get damaged, it's too small, and they don't have the dexterity to be able to use that phone, it's too small. So when Steve Jobs uh, announced the iPad back in February 2010, um, I was like, wow, I saw the size of his hand next to the size of the screen of the iPad and thought, this is it, this is it. Um, and it was just one of those moments um, on a Friday night with a, a glass of wine um, and I decided this is it. I, I think we can put the language program onto the iPad. So flew to New York um, about a, a month or so later to get one of the first iPads because they weren't available in the UK. Queued up on um, Fifth Avenue to get oh, one, gosh. and I was in this massive queue, and everyone was going, "How many are you buying?" And I was like, "One." It's all I could <laughs> afford at that point because it was my first time in New York. You know, I'd spent all the money getting there. And it was just really exciting to have it. And I still have the photo of me kissing it um, <laughs> as soon as I got it. And then I went back to the charity and said, listen, I want to, you know, do my own thing. I'm going to come back to you when I've got a more formulated plan. So I worked a very long notice period through the summer. And then I, I went away for a year with um, my co-founder, who's a software developer, to start to work with some speech and language therapists that I'd met through the Macaton charity and some teachers and social workers and start to build some evidence and evidence base with control studies around how effective an iPad could be with the Macaton language program. Because at that point, 
there were quite a few people around saying that um, the technology might be damaging for children and vulnerable adults um, because of the screen. You know, there was lots of unknown things. People have been talking about radiation waves with phones. So, uh, you know, it was very quite controversial at the time to be using it with people with disabilities. So we had to go out and I had to sell iPads basically in the first year as a package because nobody had any iPads. Mm. Got into schools, got into hospitals, got into care homes. So I had to persuade people to to buy iPads and package it all together and do lots of studies and then get those accepted by other therapists that we were taking the right approach. And then the charity said eventually, yes, we'll give you a license. So all this was in beta format at the time. And then we were able to release on the App Store in 2011. So that's how we, yeah, that was the start of, of my choice pad and my first company. Yeah. So that company was called My Choice Pad. Um, yeah. So you set that up as a social enterprise, is that right? It was, I guess, back in 2010, there wasn't really, social enterprises were talked about, but weren't really associated with technology at the time. And I'd been, you know, I've been reading TechCrunch for a few years before then. I was obsessed with tech startups and I knew about the funding landscape back in 2010. There wasn't really much option between, you know, you're either a charity which didn't have the risk profile to take on the the level of risk and investment that you need to have with doing technology. So I set it up as a limited company, um, just bearing in mind that, you know, I thought you could have a limited company with a social purpose behind it. I didn't see any issues with that. And I I guess what then came on to be, I was considered um, like an impact company after that. I got labelled. Um, but I was one of the first lot to come through um, where people were calling me um, like a social tech enterprise. So I guess I didn't call myself that. Others <laughs> did and it <laughs> stuck. So, yeah. <laughs> so just talk us through, I guess, the, the, the basics of my choice pad then. So what problem were you solving and who were the customers? So um, we were quite lucky in that the the problem was much simpler than many other ones so the problem was that lots of people can't communicate they can't speak um and and using visual forms of language helps it had already proven the Makaton language program had been proven it'd been countless um academic journals uh, over the last the previous 30 years before i got involved demonstrating its effectiveness in helping people learn language in this way and start to communicate and use sounds and use words in ways that really worked for them. So what I was trying to prove, the problem I was trying to solve was getting them easier access and getting it cheaper to them because the charity sold lots of books, which were then purchased by local authorities, but the parents couldn't access it. So I wanted to do something for the parents and for the schools that had um, less money to be able to access the language programme and to not just have to pull books out everywhere that they went so that they could do it, you know, have Makaton at their fingertips. So it was ease of access and more affordability was what I was trying to do in something that would, had already been proven to be really effective. So digitization. So that was what I was doing. And for you and your co-founder, who was the techie um, of the two of you, I guess, what, what were your strengths in you guys addressing this problem? Why were you two the best people to be doing this out of anybody? Um, I guess if I start with my co-founder, Andrew, who just a, a really, really well accomplished full stack developer. 
who could turn his hand to anything and was working in banks at the time, investment banking, and wanted to do something that he could, you know, leave a legacy to his kids and things that's something to be proud of that he produced. Yeah. Um, and then for me, there was, at the time, there was probably about 10 people in the, the UK with the level of knowledge that I had about the Makaton language program. Mm-hmm. So if you combine that knowledge and the networks, the route to market that I had through the charity and the trust, combined with Andrew, with the tech, meant that we were, you know, in a really... Um, unique combination the two of us to bring this to market there was not many other people that could have done that yeah often called the unfair advantage right yeah (laughs) exactly um so what were some of the challenges as you guys were starting out um i think i mean the first 18 months are always the honeymoon period and you you think everything's going great i guess uh, i'd given up my job Andrew was still working in an investment bag. So he was working all his evenings and weekends and I was putting everything, you know, full time into it. After about 18 months, we, we'd sold on the first day that we'd released it. So, we, you know, we'd built up over that year. We'd been doing all the studies. We'd built a massive community and people were buying right from day one. But it wasn't obviously at the, the level that they needed to be for, for us both to go into it full time. So that was the first hurdle, how... We sustained that over a period of time until the revenue came up because the issue with the app store back in 2011 was that you didn't have subscription. It was one off only. There was no Mm. other way. Yeah. So we had to build, you know, we were dealing with people paying. I think we started at £75 for the app and people were buying it um, because the only alternative was spending hundreds on books for Makaton or using non-Makaton AAC devices, alternative augmentative communication devices, that were between five and ten thousand pounds. So that was the difference that the iPad made. It took something wow. down to less than five hundred pounds. That was between five and ten thousand pounds until that point. So in yeah, terms of that's how you sell it, it to investors. Basically, that was the sell. Yeah, <laughs> totally destroying a market of medical devices, which is where this came into. Yeah, so that was one of the first hurdles. How do we survive? Um, well, it's you're dealing with one-offs and the money did start to run out um, like 18 months in and someone had seen me pitch um, at a, I think it was Tech Pitch, tech pitch 4.5, I think they're still running, and had seen me in the audience and said, we, we'd like you to enter our competition. We don't have any tech ones like you and I think you really fit them all. And I think at that point we spent that long in research we'd only been on sale seven weeks and they wanted three months cash flow forecast of uh, three years cash flow forecast no I don't have all this and there was only 48 hours to submit before the deadline wow. and he just said it doesn't matter don't fill in the cash bit I was like really so I just filled in all the rest you know problem solution products what we were aiming to do what we were selling how far we'd done in them the, you know in two months that we'd been on sale and I've got through numerous rounds until, you know, I had to do like a Dragon's Den type thing. And I remember um, the morning that they were given the, the announcements of whether you'd got through. So there'd been thousands of people apply for this program, three-year program with £25,000 grant and then support to, to get you investment over three years. And I was I was in bed feeling a little bit low as some days that you do one morning and the phone went and I was like... I think, I knew, you know, I kind of knew what it was. And then they told me that I'd been selected and there was 25 of us from around the UK that get it. And 
at that point I was at a stage where I didn't know how I was going to pay the next month's rent Wow. So <laughs> I was literally picked up off the floor. Wow. Um and was like, Oh my god, I don't believe it. You know, it's it's funny how things can happen like that, how it really looks like it's the end of the road. I'd gone for a job interview too as a deputy CEO of a charity. Mm. And I think that same week that I'd been asked to apply for um Big Bench Challenge, that I'd been rejected. I got down to the last two. Can you imagine what that wow. feels like? And I thought, oh, you know, I do this part-time job and that'll help me sustain doing my choice pad. And I didn't get it. So it was such a, it's a kick in the teeth that I was like, oh, God, because you go through so many rounds to get a deputy CEO job. Um, yeah, so I was at the end and then I got picked up by this grant. And then, you know, things unlimited who gave me the grant were just incredible. And, you know, I'm, I'm a massive supporter of them. They, they really changed everything for me at, at that point. And six months after I got that grant, I got into Wira. And so I got corporate um, acceleration from Telefonica's accelerator, Wira. It was the first one that they did in 2012. So we were in there nine months. Um, When I came out of there, I raised angel investment from Clearly So. And then about a year after that, I, I raised VC. So it all kind of I'm not saying that there were no other hurdles in between there because each time it was like, oh, you know, nearly run out of money or, you know, there's something, there's a problem with the the product, we need to fix this, you know, working through the night. There's always something. I mean, there wasn't a week when it it didn't feel like it was a disaster at some point. But then, you know, nearly during that two or three year period, nearly every month or two we were winning something or we'd won some award, or we were being put forward to as finalists or something. It was absolutely incredible, an amazing, amazing roller coaster of, of <laughs> the best highs and the most terrible lows. You know, there really is no straight line. <laughs> so, what would your advice be for the people listening that are potentially feeling like they're at that point that you were just before everything turned around? It doesn't take much just a phone call away, but you have to create your own opportunities. Yeah, you know, you, you you can sit and wallow in your your own, you know, oh woe is me, but nothing's going to come to you. You have to go out there and create them. So it's things are out there, which I know is easy to say when you're not actually doing it, but you have to create those opportunities for yourself to get to put yourself out there to meet those people, to enter those competitions, to to go out raise that investment. Yeah. Make those connections, make those sales most importantly. Sales, yeah. sales, sales. And talking of which, <laughs> you guys did lots of contracts with what seems like a, a lot of public sector organizations um, as well as others. Yeah, lots of NGOs. Yeah. yeah. Care what's, homes. Your, what's your secret with that? Why do you think you were so successful at doing that? Um, network, really. I managed to meet a couple of people really early on that were really influential in the sector. And I guess they just took me under their wing and they introduced me to lots of people. So I guess mentors in the field, I never call them that. I see them as a mate. Um, yeah. But um, they were very, very good to me. They believed in what I was doing and they they, they wanted to pay it back, I guess. So yeah. And um, they did. And they did an incredible job and they didn't need to do that. Um, but they did. And yeah, it's people like that who are just, you know, loads of people get MBEs and OBEs and these kind of people never get them. And they spend their entire lives working with people with learning disabilities and, you know, not recognised and some amazing people out there. 
it sounds like you've been really good at, I guess, taking the opportunities whenever they've come to you. It seems like, you know, that whenever something has presented itself, then you have just managed to to get it done or turn it around or, you know, grasp yeah, the you've got to run with it. it yeah, you just have to. When you see something, you've you got to run and, and go for it. I mean, if there's a few going on all at the same time, that's when you, you need to make decisions on which ones to prioritise because, you know, in terms of opportunities. And you'd say this if you weren't an entrepreneur too. Um, mm. You know, there's, there's always, you always have lots of options in life if you put yourself out there and you're good at sales. It's choosing the ones that you think is going to have the most impact. And you, you, you like have a, a list of things that you want to achieve when you do them so that you know, you, know, you keep that focus basically and you, you achieve those things. Talking of your sales experience, I mean, what do you think were the most important skills that you acquired before becoming an entrepreneur? Um, yes, there was different level, times when I gained confidence because if you you spoke to the CEO of the time who was at the Macaton charity um, about my personality, I think she would have said that I've done a, a, a absolute 360 turn on the kind of person that I am now to what I was 10 years ago. Oh, wow. We did, um, we did this change management program and we all had to become characters in this book. And I turned out everyone voted me, the rest of the leadership team, as the professor. So someone who always had their head in books and was always reading that never spoke up in public. And so, and I had this problem on my MBA team. They said the same thing. So when you say things, you know, they're they're really worthwhile, but you hardly ever say them. You need to come (laughs) in more. But I used to struggle to find the point when to say things. And I guess so it was was almost like that bit first, getting the confidence to be able to to speak out, not just in public, but also uh, amongst a a team of people to, to think that what you have to say has value. And and just barge in basically not care as much about what you say I used to have to think too much about what I was saying um and so therefore I wouldn't say anything that doesn't help in sales so yeah um, definitely definitely if you you know if you are someone who spent most of their you know first 10 years of their career or first five you know used to just being behind the books which a lot of people in healthcare are and you're not used to going out there and, and being at the the forefront um it's time to speak up there's there's too many alphas out there and those b types you know we, we could do pretty good stuff too and um, yeah. we like to reflect you've just got to learn to speak quicker speak up it might not be the most accurate thing you say first but your brain will get used to working at the speed it needs to to get you in the conversation just get in otherwise you know you will always be the b types and we'll never be the entrepreneurs and the types of things that people create will all be done by the alphas and they're all the same things and um, so I think it's time we had diverse products and you know diverse kind of thought going out there. So. I think that's really good advice and I guess there's nothing that breeds confidence quite like being recognized for what you're good at and, and winning awards and I guess just for the for the listeners Zoe sent me through um, just a few of the things that she's done in her career just before we jumped on this call and she sent me a list of the awards that she's won that she could remember and I think I'd be here until tomorrow if I actually read them all but you know Zoe you've you've won female social entrepreneur of the year you've been finalists at, at tech awards and mobile awards and angel investment of the year tech for good competition you know just to pick a few 
just a comment here. You've just won an outstanding amount of awards. Yeah, I, I think I was riding a wave. There was, there was, you know, government policy was was looking at uh, technology, uh, tech for good started to to really become something that people move towards and I was one of the more mature ones so you know maybe what I did was you know the product was excellent I think but more than anything I think I was in the right place at the right time um yeah and I I love doing what I do and I'm you know very proud of of the team that I managed to to build around me with the with my choice pad so it was my confidence first so getting that out there and then all of a sudden I found that my passion, so this, you know, you're bringing forth that confidence. And because it was quite an inner confidence that I had and I wasn't used to speaking out, when I did speak, it, there was so much passion that came out. That I guess it never sounded false or anything like that because I wasn't a salesperson by natural ways. I was more because I'd spent so much time on this product in homes with parents who were so frustrated with the way that they were being treated by not just society but by the government and the issues they had with the healthcare process with with education and then going into the school seeing how that the lack of money or the, the constraints that they were under and the the children themselves the, the the amount of support that they needed and the things that they could do when they did have communication and the way it changed their lives and you know, parents calling you up and crying on the phone at the difference that your product made to them and that they'd heard their child speak for the first time because of my choice pad. It's like when you're having your lowest of lows and you're getting nervous about doing a sale or something's big or you need to close that contract. Whenever I, I just think of those parents and those kids and you'd be like, yeah, I can do this. I can do it. And then, yeah, and that's where my sales prowess came from mm. it was just knowing that what you've got is, is something amazing and it, it can do this and it, it can change lives and you want to get it out there and you want to make sure everybody finds the value in that and that that's why they should pay you this certain amount and also I guess sales is about listening and resonating with people so when I I did a lot of making videos from really really early on so back in 2010 I spotted that videos were going to be a good way of um, promoting and uh, telling your story and it was very true so I was glad I'd started making videos really early on <laughs> and I used these videos the sales I'd tell the story of this person they'd be like three four minutes long and I'd show the CEOs of, of care homes I'd say right this is you know somebody who was one word level when we started and six months later he's now got three words which is, is quite an incredible achievement considering he's 19 and they wrote him off after 16 that he would never learn any more words. And this is what we can do with adults. I said, they do not stop learning. And um, they just need to have more focus on their communication while they're in the care homes. And I showed this to many of the CEOs of, of social care. And what's really, really nice about a lot of learning disability um, providers, some of the biggest ones, is that those CEOs have started right from the bottom. They were social workers. Wow. And they remember, you know, doing their... That's why they're such amazing CEOs um, of 100 million plus turnover companies. They started right at the bottom. They remember these people and they know they're in a corner and they don't speak. And it was it resonated with them. They're like, yeah. So and they're entrepreneurial, too, because they've had to be to come, you know, working all the way through to get to the top of some really, really massively big companies in social care. And yeah, they were like, yeah, let's give it a go. Let's go. And so it's just, you know, someone believes in you because they can see in me what that why they do what they do so and I'm just trying to support that 
So you're that's definitely impact driven, aren't you? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's definitely so. fair to say that you're driven by impact, <laughs> and that's something that I can really relate to. I think um, people often ask me about the, the career moves I've made and things, and it's the, it's the same thing. You know, I've always moved to scale my own impact and and try and increase the amount of people that I can impact and and the ways that I can do that. And I guess in a in a similar way, um, you've done quite a lot similar, which led you on to become a venture capitalist yeah yeah now on the other side so yeah it came 2017 had the opportunity to exit and then my VCs um, offered me like an in-between role um, as a venture partner so doing sourcing and, and looking at deals for them and investigating certain areas and then in 2018 they raised a new fund um, of which half of it was going to be in the UK and they needed somebody on the ground for them and they asked me to become an investment manager in the UK so yeah I've swapped over to the other side now and this is Ananda Ventures right yeah it's Ananda Ventures they're based out of Munich but like you just said they've got a a London office too most of the team are in Germany but with us three of us over in the UK and they're what's called an impact investor we invest in technology companies that have measurable impacts, so health tech, ed tech, um, social care tech, um, sustainability, um, circular economy. Um, but we've been in the UK most heavily on health tech, ed tech and social care tech. So it fits perfectly in with my background. So talk to me about the word impact then when it comes to investing, because I'm sure you guys don't just pick good causes <laughs> to invest in. There obviously needs to be really solid business models and things behind what you invest in. So how does that fit? How, how do you how do you marry those worlds together of, of doing social good um, and I guess maintaining the fact that you're investing in, in good business models? Well, I guess what we look for, uh, similar to the the mainstream VCs, and it's it's got to be an area that's going to have a you know a, a very large size of market, so we can get the returns that we need. Um, we're slightly patient, more patient capital, so it means that we have uh, slightly lower than um, ten times, I think it's six times, um, return that we expect. So it's it's considered more patient capital on the return which fits in well for healthcare, actually. Mm. But um, I guess we're certainly not for charities. It's it's for profit and we do need that exit. What we do look for is that the the purpose of what the, the so if it's a piece of technology, if you're doing something like um, patient record keeping, that's not going to fit in with our impact because the impact on the patient is too one step removed from what we need it to be it would need to be so those patient record keeping you'd need to be primarily about measuring the impact the change in life that you did with that record keeping that kind of thing so it it means that some areas of healthcare are not suitable and the majority are when you think about someone's doing genomic data um, on on cancer that's going to you know apply to us because you can measure the impact on people and and what you're doing to, to help them You can look at most areas of psychotherapy, speech and language therapy. There's loads of cases where it's actually having an impact built in to the the end benefit, benefactory. So we can measure that impact. 
So, yeah. And for the startups listening who, who might be looking for investment, are there any particular areas within health that you're looking at a bit closer than others? Uh, recently, we've been talking about, we're looking at what we've got and what we haven't got, looking at the gaps in the portfolio. So at cancer detection, early detection, heart disease, prevention, respiratory diseases, and, and femtech as well, femhealth. Um, we don't have anything on there. And being female myself, I'd like to um, yeah, add some balance back sure. into the portfolio. I think it's a massive area that's underserved at the moment. So awesome. quite big areas that we're looking at at the moment. So from your perspective, I guess you've been on both sides of the table here, quite literally. Um, what does a good company look like for you? What does a good team look like? What, what do you look for in, in people and companies? I mean, different stages of different things. Um, I mean, we're late seed series A, which means they've probably been going at least two or three years, maybe four or five before we'd invest. But when we first start to look, we like to look at them one or two years before. So when we start to to look at them, um, we're looking at people, particularly in healthcare, um, much, much prefer people. It's a much easier sell if we've got a background in it. Um, credibility um, and a, a good story. You have to be a really good storyteller um, and a natural salesperson. Well, natural in the terms of not natural from being born because I wasn't, but you know, <laughs> you, you can, um, you, it's been developed already. There's something in there. It comes with the passion. Um, you know, they can get the eye contact that you can, you make somebody want to take, you know, buy from you or take something. You've got to believe in them when you're selling it. You believe in what they're telling you. And there's, there's, it's like a, an element of leadership that's there too. So you can see them managing a team, uh, you know, that, that's growing and getting performance out of them. But also a level of humility. Um, this is healthcare. Um, the understanding of, of what the, the patient, you know, desires and wants. Um, must always be, you know, be the first thing that's patient-led is the most important thing to remember in health. Um, and if you can't do that, then I don't quite understand how you can lead a healthcare company. Sure. Um, but yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Just had a couple no, of other things. No, Network. Go for it. Go for it. By the time we get to invest in you. So if this isn't when we first meet you, if your network isn't that great, um, a couple of years later, it should be pretty strong. And you know your weaknesses and um, you know how to fill them as well. So you've got ideas. These are the, my gaps. Can you help me fill them? So because when we meet people, you know, they're quite amazing people that are running healthcare companies when when they get to us. But it's everybody's always got a weakness. Nobody could do everything. So it's being aware of that shows us that level of maturity and giving us ideas of of where we can fill it out. And then we can go amongst our network as well. And if you are a tech company, health tech, then you don't have to be a developer, but it helps if you have a very strong awareness of that technology so that you're not really reliant on your CTO. Sure. And as impact investors, how do you guys, I guess, track or measure that impact impact? Do you expect things of your portfolio companies in terms of reporting and things like that in order to measure that impact? Or is that something that you assess at the initial point only? Um, no, it's something that we need to report back on to our funders. So at the moment, we're doing our annual report and I am gathering in from our portfolio, um, not just the, the normal measurements, uh, general ones, but all the impact KPIs as well. So 
when we sign an investment agreement, um, we agree the, the KPIs in terms of impact that we're going to measure. And those will, as the business evolves, we have a little bit of leeway in there so that we can ad adapt them as well, because hopefully you'll get better because normally at the beginning it's outputs that you've got. And then we get to the point where we're starting to, to, to measure outcomes as well. And we have a, an internal approach as to how we, we measure outcomes as well and report back on that. Sure. And what are your thoughts on the health tech space in general at the moment from, I guess, maybe from a tech point of view with your tech hat on or maybe from a venture capital and investment point of view with that hat on? Um, I, I'm really happy to say that, you know, it's, it's abundant at the moment. I remember when I started out with my choice pad, being speech and language therapy, it's healthcare, but I actually was told not to call it healthcare and I became ed tech instead um, because oh, wow. they said no one will invest in healthcare. So I, I labelled myself ed tech because at that time everyone was investing in ed tech. <laughs> so now it's swept the other way and everybody wants to talk about health tech. So, you know, that's, that's really, really refreshing. But what it does mean is that the market is flooded. Um, there's lots of people and everyone can tell that it's, it's not sustainable. There'll be quite a few that, that don't make it or lots of mergers. You know, there'll be, you know, just a few winners in another 10 years. And how is that going to play out? And that's the job of the VCs to try and make those those bets and try and predict what's going to happen in those 10 years and how it will will fall together but what it does mean is there's a lot of filtering through there's a lot of decisions to be made um yeah and hard work at our end but you know i never forget sure. as an entrepreneur it's definitely a lot harder at their end um to, to get through and, and what's most concerning is the speed of healthcare sales is extremely slow vc's fast the the two of them are not necessarily good um bed mates um no. so how that works out is, is yet to be discovered but it, it, there's yeah there's going to be a lot of pain I think in the process um it, it, you know that we're there to get the pain and, and then find out what happens in terms of the the tech um there's a lot of AI around and I don't know how well due diligence is being done on many of them and how deep that AI is at the moment but AI takes up many years to become fruitful um and you know really deep and most of it's not there yet and it's about having that patient capital to, to see that come to, to life and for investors to do much better due diligence on what AI actually is in healthcare and which ones are, are worth backing but I think it's going to take a lot of time and we're not there yet even though there's lots of money going in that direction so yeah, it's it's a confusing. It's filled with lots of opportunities. There's lots of things, you know, lots of companies around. It's just working out over the next two years which ones are going to survive. But it's all about survival in the end. And that selection process is your job now, right, Zoe? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be able to filter through and yours. So. Indeed. Um, so I, I guess what, what tech would you would you think is going to going to pop out this year? I mean, you, I've seen a, I've read a few of these lists now about, you know, tech to watch out for in 2019. And, and the same things tend to pop up, you know, generically AI, AI comes up and machine learning and computer vision and a few other bits and bobs in diagnostics. Have you got any kind of good bets mm. for this year and on, on what, what you think will come to the fore? I mean, 
we're looking you know patient-powered healthcare is, is a big thing has been for a long time it's it for for vcs it's about um analyzing that market and getting to the root of you know talking to lots of people who are working out which areas to focus upon so you may you know make a couple of investments in a certain area that have some overlap so you can support them maybe um have you know similar distribution channels you know start thinking about how you can as a portfolio how you can all the other companies around it can support each other and you become more knowledgeable in those areas because we cross not just healthcare but other areas so it's about getting becoming more of an expert for us in certain areas and another bit um is getting under the the cover um i guess um in quantum computing so looking at facilitating technologies not just the the top end the consumer healthcare but um looking at what's under the hood and what is going to be really fundamental in changing healthcare in quantum computing that's going to have you know be the big companies in the next 10 years so i to- i totally agree i mean i was speaking about this yesterday with somebody actually that you find in health there's so much passion to change things there's so much as a result of that, there's often so much localism as well, because people see a problem that's in front of them that they feel so passionate to solve and they might develop a tech solution for it. But very rarely do, do these ideas have that kind of ambition to um, cover something, you know, as, as wide as quantum computing or, you know, to solve a, a bigger problem in, in a much bigger way that could attract venture capital money to be a potential billion dollar company, you know? Yeah, no, no, no. There's lots to do, but we're in a great space, aren't we? I mean, it's, it's yeah. There's more funders now, VC, so it makes us more competitive, which makes us better investors. So it's good for the entrepreneurs. And yeah, there's there's more money around. Um, there's more companies. Um, so it's it's all positive. We've just got to do a better job as VCs now. Cool. So Zoe, just a few quick questions, just on Ananda, just for anybody listening. What's your ticket size? So our sweet spot is a million pounds. We'll do one to three million and invest up to seven million in one company over time. If we think they're doing a really good job. Awesome. And the geography of it you mentioned before was Europe. Yeah, so it's Europe. So the the old Europe and the UK is is what we cover at the moment. And cool. our social impact primarily at the point we go in needs to be in that area. It can expand beyond after we put the money in, but beforehand it needs to be within the eu or the uk and the stage of the company and um, so late seed series a so that can mean lots of things for, for different people depending on who you speak to but generally um it's, there's always exceptions to the rule if we, we fall in love with someone um but generally they've got a, a few hundred thousand recurring revenues secure contracts in place we're more on the b2b side than the b2c it's just easier from a sales perspective and it's where we have more strength in our portfolio in the, the b2b um yes that we're already fairly established and the money's for scale cool and you guys reserve for follow-on right yes perfect cool so the way we close these out zoe is um normally hand back over to you um to just kind of summarize anything you want to summarize be that about yourself or ananda um, and if you've got any asks of our audience, then take it away to close us out. Oof. 
Okay. Um, Often puts people on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That told me about that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess. I guess my story is that it's about resilience with with my choice pad. Definitely, it was, it was seven years of my life that absolutely changed my life from someone who was sat at a desk in a charity, thinking there's got to be more to life than this, and there was, you know. And I found it. Um, have went through lots of um, ups and downs in the meantime, personally, financially, professionally, but I would not change a single thing. And it was the best thing uh, I ever did. And uh, yeah, it's well worth it if you're ever considering it's go back to behind that desk, uh, keep at it. And the, the VC side, it, it's an interesting one doing the, the change. And yeah, I would recommend it to other entrepreneurs. It wasn't something I, I planned. But I think it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to, as an entrepreneur, to get to see hundreds of, you know, in a year of different companies and, and, and see the inspiration, the ideas, the technology behind this. It's, it's truly inspiring and it makes you want to have so many ideas yourself. Um, but, you know, to, to be in a position where you, you can help others um, from your experience is incredible. So I definitely do recommend it. And um, having that operating experience helps no end as a, as a VC. And yeah, in terms of an ask um, for people to think of Ananda um, when it, you know, when, even when they're early stage to, to look me up, um, I'm going to start putting some office hours out and to, you know, two years in advance, 18 months in advance, come and see me, let me, you know, hear me out. And um, yeah, I'll tell you what we do at Ananda. You tell me what you're doing and it would be great to track you um, from early on. So, Perfect. Yeah. And you can get um to you at info at ananda.vc so that's yep. a-n-a-n-d-a dot v-c great thanks Zoe. all right thank you thanks james